Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy is still Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. And today we're going to get weird. We are going to get weird. I think we need to call it before we get too much into our contact. I'm just going to throw it out. Thanks on the uh, Twitter shout out from our uh, our start one of our Star Wars uh, sites that they're pointing out that we've been doing this for five years. Have we really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, I was kind of surprised to see that myself, but uh, yeah, thanks for the call out uh, in conjunction with that. That's amazing. It does not it does not feel that long. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel that long at all. And admittedly, it's we only have I think three seasons in five years. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the COVID year was a little odd. Uh, we've kind of morphed formats over the years, but uh, but. Anyway, the, the motivation for today's episode is that Kirk and I, uh, last Sunday, went to a concert together. We saw the Weird Al Yankovic concert yep. in uh, Chesterfield, and we thought, you know what? It's about time we talk about this, because one of the most common questions we get, you know, when you go to parties or when you meet people and you say you're a copyright lawyer, everybody wants to know, is what Weird Al does <laughs> Fair use. Yep, and I think and the, the interesting thing about this is, is the concert was primarily his original music, yeah, so it doesn't actually apply to the concert in many Although, respects. Well, we'll talk about this. <laughs> At the end, he kind of mixed up the parody lyrics with original yes. compositions, which we're going to explain why he gets away with that. And it's, <laughs> it's a lesson in not paying royalties, un- royalties unnecessarily. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that. But the, the idea was to, to cover this topic, which we've talked about doing for, for really years. Yep. Um, and we've kind of avoided one because music copyright is, is a I've, I've heard copyright a, a lawyer friend of mine described copyright as just a psychotic area of law yeah. which it kind of seems that way if you don't practice in it but even for copyright uh, by copyright standards music law is really complicated and difficult yeah and I mean a lot of it's just because it's evolved over time and as, quite frankly as opposed to a lot of copyright law it has evolved and so yes. that's part of the reason why you're having those kind of issues with it but yeah m- music introduces all sorts of weird things into copyright because basically as music has become has evolved from live music to you know music of today which you know involves you know using recorded music and making music out of it and stuff like that the copyright law has evolved and it's one of the few areas where it really has evolved to try to deal with these new technologies but as part of it when it's evolved to deal with those new technologies it's created new mechanisms and schemes underneath itself all of which you have to understand, and it has gotten rid of nothing but added a lot, and that's why it gets confusing. Yeah, if you ever want to see an example of how laws used to be written, uh, the Copyright Act goes into almost inhumane technical detail <laughs> about how to calculate royalties and what the rules are, and trying to read, like if you're trying to read the, uh, the satellite radio sections, oh geez. oh my gosh, it is it is just, if you can't sleep at night, print that out and read it, that'll, that'll <laughs> knock you out in no time. Uh, it is very detailed, and in a way that statutes are not usually written that way anymore. So uh, so we're going to talk about um, sort of the, the basis of fair use as applied to music, which is a decision from 1994 called uh, Campbell versus Acuff Rose. Campbell is a uh, Luther Campbell, also known as Luke Skywalker with two Ys. Not that <laughs> Luke Skywalker, the one from Two Live Crew. crew. Uh, they did a parody of Pretty Woman that sort of established the law here. Uh, but we, we, you know, we know this is a little bit outside of our normal boundaries. But you know, we kind of figure this is if you're not a Weird Al fan, you're probably a nerd. <laughs> it's Weird Al. You're probably a nerd. It involves Luke Skywalker. It's yeah, entirely it's in our wheelhouse. Well, and then Emo Phillips was the did a, a little stand up to open the concert Sunday, and even had a joke about how if you're here, you probably got bullied <laughs> on the way to the concert. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So let's go over. Um, Really quickly, um, or as quickly as we're capable of, which you know that's a that's a low a low barrier. But uh, we'll go over some basics of copyright and a couple of the music copyright principles you have to bear in mind to make sense out of all of this. The first one is, of course, copyright. You know, as we always say, it's about what Kirk. Copying. 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 Yeah, the the right to make copies. So copyright is not about attribution, although uh, as a practical matter, that that is important in a lot of these industries. But a lot of that is not for for copyright purposes. It's more about who gets credit for things, who gets royalties for things. If you are named as the author on the work, then you have authorship rights, which means you have copyright rights. Uh, And and generally speaking, it doesn't matter in reality whether you're the author or not. If you're recognized as the author, you get those royalties because that's just how the industry works. Just just an example with that. I happen to catch this, and this is being a bit of a cynical, you know, IP attorney. If you watched Ken Burns' documentary on country music, it's worth going back and noting in early country music, 
how oftentimes songwriters got added to early country music songs. <laughs> Those songwriters happening to be somebody at the record company. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have an idea why that might have been? Uh, that's the, the sort yeah. of thing with it. You know, that it's. I point that out because it was when watching that as a, you know, as the cynical IP lawyer, I'm looking at it and going, oh, it's because they want to make sure they own the rights in this, you know, which is not something Ken Burns ever says in the yeah. documentary. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's one of those things that's it's an interesting sort of thing to think about is you do kind of bump into this where the attribution to who is the author is usually because of things in yep. music that say that person therefore gets something out of being the author. You see this in film a lot too, not to digress yeah. too much, but in film, getting credit as an author or a co-author, it matters for uh, guild points, basically. Your qualifications and eligibility yeah. to join the Screen Actors Guild or the Writers Guild or the whatever guild. So yeah. sometimes you'll see big fights over who gets credit for things. You probably, if you listen to this podcast, you've heard us say before, attribution doesn't really matter legally in terms of it doesn't get you out of the box if you're getting yeah. copyright infringement. Uh, but being credited as the author does matter because it gets you it gets you rights. But yeah. it's not credit in terms of of you know I can go print copies of Harry Potter as long as I say it belongs to J.K. <laughs> Rowling. It's not infringement. No, it still is. Yeah. So here's the extreme example: academic publications. Obviously, any of you guys who are out there involved in it, my wife's an academic, and so it's one of those things where you know. Authors and academic publications as always point out the first one matters, the last one matters, and all the ones in the middle are because they need a publication. Yeah, you know that that's kind of the way the thing works. <laughs> you know, in many responses, um, you know, in, in t- cases behind it, you know, it, it's those types of things. And actually, it's one that I have trouble with sometimes in patent law because we'll deal with things where they're giving me here's an academic journal article that we want converted into a patent, and it's well, who are the inventors versus who are the authors of the article? Yeah, because you can readily be appropriately attributed on an academic article and not be an inventor of the patent. Um, And so it's a matter of sort of keeping that straight. So again, we'll leave off on on attribution, but it's just something to keep in mind that there's attribution issues out here that really don't affect the legal issues at all. So let's break down uh, songs. Music copyright is especially crazy because you've basically got two completely different and not entirely related sets of copyrights with music. I think when most people think of music, they're thinking of the things you hear on the radio or that you hear on Spotify, but that is actually two different copyrighted works one yeah. <laughs> is the song which is in in legal parlance is called a musical work a term that's not actually defined in the copyright act uh but the musical work is what we would think of as a composition or yeah. the song in the abstract but what you're listening to is both the song and a sound recording a recorded performance of somebody playing the song we had music before we had sound recordings, obviously. Yep. And so the, the law around musical compositions and the rights to them kind of grew up and evolved in the, the mid-19th century before we really had to deal with how do we handle people handing out phono records, which is recordings of people playing music. Yep. Yeah, and I think the other thing with it I always tell people is it's when you think about the what is a, you know, a composition copyright, it's the sheet music. Yeah, that's the way to think it's really about it. It's the best way to think about it. Admittedly, the sheet music has a separate copyright. Yeah, it's it. literary work also. <laughs> because it's also a literary work. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things is that's sort of the best way to think about it because there's nobody playing the sheet music, but it is the song. I mean, yes. anybody who can read sheet music would recognize that it is the song and, and what the song is. Um, so that's oftentimes the easiest way to sort of think about, you know, uh, what it is. But yeah, uh, the problem, one of the first problems you always bump into in copyright is people thinking the sound recording is the work. And yes, it is, but it's only half the work. Yeah. And that's and that's the thing you really got to keep in mind. And so for today's uh, purpose, we're going to talk about parody. And obviously, if you're doing a parody, you're making your own sound recording. So you're not usually copying the original sound recording. You may be trying to make it sound the same, which you're allowed to do. We'll talk about that too. Uh, but you're not usually sampling. You're not directly copying the sound recording. And the copyright protection in a sound recording is very thin and really only extends to actually sampling or copying the song. So yep. when it comes to the composition... Uh, we actually have a whole body of laws uh, to govern making basically covers, which is where you're just doing your own performance of the song, maybe your own interpretation or take. But there are limits to what you can do even there. So a good example of that I saw uh, last Friday before the Weird Al concert, we had Sammy Hagar in town, who, by the way, I've learned Sammy Hagar loves St. Louis and St. Louis loves Sammy Hagar. <laughs> yes, I don't really understand why, but apparently that's the case. Uh, but opening for Sammy was uh, George Thorogood and the Destroyers. And one of his best known songs is uh, Who Do You Love? which is not actually his song. It was written by Bo Diddley, uh, but he played it. So he did a cover of his own cover <laughs> at this thing. And then uh, Move It On Over, which is a Hank Williams song, which he also did a cover of his own cover at the concert. So uh, the important thing there is, although I paid money to go see George, um, 
Hank Williams gets money, or his estate, I suppose, yeah. uh, for him doing the cover, and likewise Bo Diddley, uh, because uh, they own the songwriting yeah. and the composition rights. Maybe, maybe not directly, depending on exactly how the arrangements yeah. are, but yeah, that's, you know, yeah, effectively they should be getting some form of a, yeah. a royalty. In, in practice, songwriters assign their rights to what's called a music publisher. That's an old term that refers back to the, the sheet music days. Uh, but the music publisher manages all the royalty streams, takes administrative fee, and makes sure that you get yeah. paid for everything. They basically determine how much each song is played, not each time is played, but how much it's generally played and then assign sort of the all the royalties they take in on kind of a percentage basis is my yep. understanding how the things work basically yeah pretty much so um so we're going to talk about musical compositions and you know as we said at the outset copyrights about copying and uh, musical compositions are kind of weird because we the the laws of the united states first recognized uh, a copyright in musical compositions not until 1831 by which point we had plenty of music out there and even then uh, it was only limited to copying sheet music there was nothing yeah. about performances uh, certainly nothing about recording or streaming because you know, none of that existed we didn't, didn't even have radio yet uh, but as technology grew and changed uh, the copyright law changed with it and one of the most important developments is something we call the compulsory license or the mechanical license Kirk, why do we have this thing? <laughs> Basically because it was difficult to uh, administrate it otherwise. It's called a mechanical license because it relates to music enough to play your piano. Yeah, mechanical reproductions. Yeah, yeah, reproductions. Like, truly mechanical reproductions. Um, it's an important distinction because it's one thing to say a person is performing the song, uh, but the question was when a machine mechanically reproduces it, that's not the same as playing back a recorded performance. And so there was a question, if I'm selling the piano rolls, the pieces of the, the rolls of paper with the music, the holes punched in it, is that distributing a copy of the sheet music or not? Yeah, it wasn't and clear. And that's what you bumped into, is you sort of looked at it and said, you have the person playing the piano, that's one thing we recognize. They have to have the sheet music, or they have to have it memorized, yeah. right? You have, to, you have the distribution of the sheet music, which was the second thing, but now you have this roll, which isn't the sheet music, but incorporates the sheet music, but ends up producing the performance without the human. Yeah. And so you end up with this this mid-ground, for lack of a better way of putting it, performance right. Yeah. The mechanical right behind the, sorry, the performance right being the human performing it, the mechanical right being this mechanical reproduction of the sound, not being performed, not being sheet music. Yeah, the, uh, the music industry basically said, no, you shouldn't have to pay for that. Uh, and everybody else said, no, we don't want to, uh, because having a mechanical uh, reproduction was way cheaper than hiring a piano player in your saloon. Yeah. Uh, so the, the balance they struck was to say, okay, if the song has already been published, then uh, anybody can get one of these piano rolls to use in their piano. You can't tell them no, but they do have to pay you a royalty, which right now that royalty is uh, 9.1 cents per song. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, it's, it's not a ton of money unless yeah. you're making a whole lot of uh, piano rolls. <laughs> Uh, but that rule is now applied to basically any time you want to record a cover. So if you want to, let's say you are Weird Al, and you want to do a cover of Smells Like, Smells like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, <laughs> uh, you could just go record yourself playing that song. You can do your own interpretation, your own take. You could probably even do something kind of polka-ish, which Al likes to do. <laughs> but the rule is it cannot change the fundamental character of the original, which is a really loosey-goosey standard <laughs> in the statue. What exactly yeah. does it mean to change the fundamental character? It's it's artistic statements. We're getting into sort of things like that. What, is, yeah. you know, what does it mean? If I record i mean obviously if i go out and i record you know smells like uh, teen spirit i am not going to sound like kurt cobain no, nobody it's just can the way it is and so therefore it is an interpretation of the work it's going to sound different i may ch i may speed it up i may change its key yep. so i can sing it easier you know those kind of things are all acceptable but when does it hit unacceptable and not of changing the spirit well arguably it becomes not the same song yeah a great example of that, uh, one of my favorite Michael Jackson songs is a Billie Jean. Yep. And then Chris Cornell did a cover of that, which is slowed way down. It's much more melancholic. It's it's a lot slower and a little more, less of a dancey song and more of a kind of a sad song. Um, I'd argue that changes the fundamental character in, in some degree. But at the end of the day, it's still a song about the same thing. Yeah. Or, you know, Elvis covered um, a Big Mama Thornton song, A Hound Dog. Um, you know, uh, very much changed the character. Big Mama Thornton was singing about uh, cheating men. Yeah, yeah. Elvis was just singing about a braying dog. You know, <laughs> yeah. so so uh, there's a lot of uh, artistic flexibility in the statute in terms of how much you can get away with. 
uh, but the, the terms that are relevant that it uses is that you can make your own arrangement of the prior song, but you can't change the basic melody or the fundamental character. And importantly, your arrangement is not a separately copyrighted derivative work. Um, it is just your arrangement. Yeah. So you don't get any rights to it or anything like that. And part of the thing, I think the reason we had this stuff is because arrangements are recognized as derivative works, and so we kind of had to deal with that around the statute. That's an older version of the statute. We had to deal with that with this recreation of mechanical licenses related to sound recordings. This was my comment at the beginning. Music has evolved. Yes. You know, in <laughs> with copyright, you're seeing this evolution, this addition of stuff to it, but there's also a recognition of all the underlying stuff is still there. And that's part of the reason this gets complicated. Yeah, and I mean, the, the modern set of, of rules and regulations and laws around music really didn't fall into place until like the 70s. Yeah. You know, that's when we had the first recognition of the sound recording right, and even then only applied to new stuff. So old sound recordings were still governed by state copyright law up until about five years ago. Like, it's kind of yeah. crazy to think about that. Let's talk about the two live crew case, because this is okay. where the idea comes from that... We hear this a lot. Oh, parody's always fair use, right? Eh. Yeah, well, eh. I, mean, I think that comes from the fact that people know that parody's out there and that parody is a fair, you know, the nature of the work parody is a fair use standard. People yeah. oftentimes have bumped into that. The thing that you bump into with it is it's really not. When we think of sort of, there's parody, there's commentary, there's these kind of things sort of with it. There's also just making related funny songs. Yeah. What we oftentimes think of as a parody song is not actually a parody yeah. inside the law. And we're going to get into that because uh, that winds up being an important consideration in how we look at what Weird Al does and how he does it. Yeah. So let's talk about the Two Live Crew case. Uh, you probably all know the song Pretty Woman. Uh, if for nothing else than because you've seen the, the Julia Roberts movie, uh, so named, uh, Pretty Woman was written in 1964 by uh, Roy Orbison and William Dees. Uh, they transferred their rights to the music publisher, like we said. You usually have somebody administer these rights for you. Uh, a publisher called Acuff Rose uh, in Nashville, of course. Even yeah. back then, we're in Nashville. Uh, like we said, the publishers are rights managers. They handle your licensing, royalties, uh, yeah. that sort and of Roy thing. And Roy Orbison did record the song. Yep. I don't believe Dees was involved. I think he was just the sound I think writer. it was, uh, yeah, sound engineer or, uh, or additional songwriter. Um, and then uh, the the you know Acuff Rose is gone. Everything now is belongs to Warner Sony or um, oh, what's the other one? I'm forgetting Universal. Universal. Maybe? <laughs> yeah, so there's like three publishers left now. So Acuff Rose now is part of a uh, Sony Music. But in the uh, the 1980s, um, a Miami-based uh, rap slash hip hop group rose to prominence called Two Live Crew. Yeah. Uh, which uh, you've probably heard of, I would guess, most people. Anybody sort of our age, you've definitely heard of you've Two definitely, Live Crew. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, they our were, parents they were, all hated Two <laughs> Live yeah, Crew. They were, they were a, ma you know, a major band you know, for us as kids. It's whatever it is. You know, nowadays, they're, they're you know, falling out of prominence, I think, a little bit. But you know, they're yeah. still... You know, if you don't know who they are, you probably should learn a little bit about them and listen to a couple bit of their music because it was very influential. It was before. influential. Uh, our parents would say for all the wrong reasons. Of course, we all <laughs> thought it was amazing. But, uh, so the, the members, the, the best-known lineup was uh, uh, Luther Campbell was the front man, better known as Luke Skywalker with two Ys. Uh, Christian Wong Wan, whose stage name was Fresh Kid Ice. Dave Hobbs, whose stage name was Mr. Mix. And Mark Ross, whose stage name was Brother Marquis. Or Marquis. I'm not sure how he pronounces it. He was Marquis. Was Marquis, yeah. Uh, they were very controversial because their lyrics were very explicit, particularly by... Um, uh, you know, by 1980 standards, standards, maybe yeah. a little tamer by modern standards, but they were considered, shall we say, bawdy at the time. Uh, so Campbell wrote the lyrics to this parody of Pretty Woman. Uh, you can look this up. The lyrics are very different. Uh, they start out with kind of what I'd call a sort of hip-hop play off the same basic idea of meeting an attractive woman, and then they quickly degenerate <laughs> into... Um, a bunch of sexual yeah, references. Yeah, a bunch of sexual references, <laughs> uh, and then at, at the very end, he's just grateful that uh, she is not having his baby. Um, so <laughs> it's a very different song, and uh, I think you would have a very reasonable argument that under the cover band uh, law... Uh, it is uh, a change to the fundamental character of the song. Yeah, you know, it also really doesn't share the music as well. I think that's an important thing to sort of keep in mind. This is a hip-hop song, you know, Roy Orbison's old-school rock and roll. We definitely have a different style of yeah. music here. Now, we're going to get into some of the specifics of the music, but it's definitely a different style of music. In any event, the lyrics are different. So even if it's in the same, you know, even if you could consider it to be the same fundamental character, the lyrics are completely original and different. Yeah. And so it probably is not going to be okay under the, the cover band act. So they're they're not it's not a cover it's definitely a parody um and you know two live crew did what you should do in a situation like this they contacted Acuff Rose and said hey we wrote this uh can we license the song from you and put it out now why did they want to license the song let's point out the fact that there's a certain reason why they wanted to license the song yeah and that was because of the fact that they were going to use some of the same guitar and bass riffs yeah. in it so 
it's not that they completely rewrote the music. There yeah. is elements of the original Pretty Woman music in the song. Now, it's not entirely the same, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, but there definitely are elements of it. And there's elements of it that are recognizable to the average listener. Like, this is not something which is hidden. This is not, you know, two random notes that only, you know, yeah. somebody studying music theory would ever get. No, this is pretty apparent. If you heard the first, I listened to it the other day. Uh, if you listened to the first five or ten seconds of um, the two live crew version, you'd recognize the song and you'd also immediately know it's not Roy Orbison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's a good way to think about it is it's, you've got the similarity, you've got an immediate recognition, but you also have an immediate recognition that it's not the Roy Orbison song. So they said, uh, you know, we'll give uh, Aka Froze credit as uh, owning the rights, we'll give Orbison and Dee's credit as the authors, and we'll pay a fee. And they sent them a copy of the song and said, what do you think? Aka Froze said... No. <laughs> it was probably closer to hell no, yeah. I guess. But They said, we're not doing that. Uh, sorry. Uh, actually, they may not even have said sorry, but they definitely said no. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, um, so Two Live Crew said fine and, and launched it anyway. Yeah. And uh, after it sold about 250,000 copies, Aka Froze filed a lawsuit. Um, went to, didn't even get to a jury. Uh, at the trial level, the trial court said, um, although you know the use is commercial, which normally kind of weighs against fair use, um, it's, it doesn't mean it can't be a parody, and in this case, it seemed like it pretty much was a parody. And so they ruled against Aka Froze on that basis. Well, one thing I think to keep important in mind here with it is, we've said that sort of fair use. Parody's not really a factor of fair use. It's, it's the nature of the yeah. work. The, the thing you really kind of get into here in some respects is, is it a commentary on the original work? Yeah. And I think in some respects, that's what they're saying by being a parody it is. It is, you know, it, as I said, they're both about pretty women. They're very, very different portrayals as to what it is the you know as we said you know it's very sexually explicit lyrics and um, you know sort of things like that but it's also the fact that it kind of was i'd say arguably pointing out differences in time yeah which is probably part of the reason why the music publisher was saying no in it is because he didn't really want the roy orbison song which is this kind of classic wholesome old school yeah. rock and roll song associated with this what is now hip-hop and at this point in time he a edge genre. I yep. mean, you know, it's not really reached the mainstream, um, which was known for potentially being, you know, having violent lyrics, having sexually explicit lyrics. They don't necessarily want to be associated with this. So we have the, the reason this is probably resulting in the fact is because, hey, they asked for the license. Now they could have granted it, but they didn't grant the license because they ultimately didn't really like the song. Yeah, they probably just didn't want it to come out. Yeah, they didn't want it to come out. But now it comes out anyway, and the defense is... We can do this because it's parody, because it's fair use. Let's talk about the fair use factors real quick. There's there's four, basically. Yep. The first one is uh, the nature and character of the the use itself that you're making. Yep. And the key inquiry there, if you remember our Warhol, um, our last episode, is basically how, how transformative is it? Are you just using, repurposing the original for the same thing? Or is your new use transformative in yep. some different artistic direction in some way? Yep. And parody is generally recognized as being very transformative. Yep. In this case, it sort of is a parody. There is there's some argument. I think that this is a commentary on the original song, or yeah. at least the time period. That was the, of the argument, at least. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the second factor is the nature of the copied work, which, in practical terms, almost never makes any difference at all. The one big exception to that was Google v Oracle, where the fact yeah. that it was software did make a difference. The third factor is how much did you take, and the part that you took, how important is it to the work? Yeah. We went over that in the Warhol case. Um, kind of a, a mushy standard too, because there's sometimes you can take uh, the you know what they call the heart of the work yeah. versus which may be a small piece of it. This was probably taking the heart of the work, even yeah. though it was a relatively small piece, because again, it's immediately recognized. Yeah, you have to recognize it. So if you're not taking the parts, people know. Then yeah. what's the point? <laughs> And then the last one is, uh, and this is generally regarded as the most important factor, what is the impact that the fair use version is going to have on the market for the original? And is it commercial or non-commercial presentation? Yeah. So if, if you have, if you are a commercial work, fair use is much harder to get, yep. you know, as, the, as the, the later work, because the fact that you are essentially a direct competitor. So why should you be allowed to capitalize on them as a competitor because you're making money from it? The person should be making money from it instead that originally came up with it. And yeah, sometimes consider the most important. In this case, unquestionably a commercial work. Like that, yes. that factor isn't even going to come into play here. That's well, it's yeah. obvious. Well, it, it gets sloppy too because the, the commercial versus versus other use question is technically part of the first factor, the nature of the use, but it winds up being considered in the fourth one uh, and it kind of, the courts always get mixed up on that. Like, yeah. like where, where do we consider that? Do we do it in both? And you kind of get to the, in the first factor we say, and we're going to get to this, what the, the Sixth Circuit said, Often you get to the first factor and say, well, it's a commercial use. So I don't care how transformative it is. You're, you're, you're competing with them, right? Yeah. So it's, it's not okay. Um, 
And that is what happened here on appeal. The Sixth Circuit, again, we're in Nashville, so kind of an unusual case to come out of uh, the middle of the country, found that while the song was a parody, uh, they said every commercial use is presumptively unfair. Citing for that proposition, another fair use case, uh, Sony versus Universal Studios, 1984, the VCR case. Yes. <laughs> Um, now, the facts in the VCR case were different. It was copying the entirety of the thing for the exact same purpose. You know? Yes. So that case had some different facts. But um, the Sixth Circuit also said, you know what, although they didn't copy everything, they did copy the heart of it. They copied the the, the memorable uh, bass riff that opens it up. Um, and uh, then they said, you know what, as far as the, the harm, the, tr- the district court had, I think, correctly said, we're skeptical that two live crew is going to have any significant impact on the demand for the Roy <laughs> Orbison version. Uh, but the Sixth Circuit said, ah, we're just going to indulge a presumption of harm uh, because it is a commercial use. Getting back to that whole mixing yeah. up of the factors thing. So two live crew, uh, understandably dismayed by this development, appealed to the Supreme Court, uh, who reversed. And quite frankly, I think this, this is an interesting thing to point out. It's good that they did this. Yeah. Because if you really look at it, this is the early days of hip hop. And this is kind of what this you know, hip hop and rap music was about. Yeah. We now have this case going to the Supreme Court sort of saying, is this okay? You know, so there, there's a real, there's almost a sort of music history argument that there's a reason why virtually every lawyer has heard of this case, yeah. even if they aren't an IP lawyer. This case was very important to the world as a whole. Yeah, because if, if this doesn't come out in their favor, it cuts off a lot of the stylistic and I'd even say sort of the, the cultural elements behind rap and hip-hop music, which all grew out of like live DJing, where you don't have these problems. Yeah. You just you just get, you know, one, you're just playing music, you know, that's already recorded, so you don't have to worry about that side of it. But, you know, you get a PRO license and you just spin some discs and whatever, it's yeah. fine. And even when you're modifying, you're doing it all live, it's performance yeah. rights. And so, yeah, the thing you're bumping into with this, and I think that's the where we really saw this is sort of the evolution of copyright, the problem here was we have this type of music growing out of live music where copyright basically says, no, this is all fine. Like, yeah. everybody agrees it. As soon as it starts getting recorded, it's like, no, wait. That copyright doesn't say that's fine. Yeah. And so now we've got to try to either shoehorn it in under something else or we've got to newly deal with it. And the answer is that we're going to deal with newly deal with it. That's what we're going to deal with here. And I, sh- I should say, by way of an aside, uh, I was in Nashville uh, not too long ago, and Kirk had recommended that I visit the uh, National Museum of African American uh, Music History, which I did. Uh, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Kirk's recommendation was uh, excellent. If you're <laughs> ever there, I highly recommend it. Uh, and they went through all this stuff, the evolution of hip-hop from the DJ scene <laughs> all the way through this. Um, I think they had Flava Flav's drumhead there, like of all things. It was really uh, bizarre to have. But um, it was a really neat presentation that gets into a lot of the evolution of, of this type of music. So. Yeah, I think a lot of our background we're going to say is, you know, in conjunction with this, that's where we're basing this on from is what we learned at that museum. And, I, and I'll, I'll go ahead and put it out here as you know what it is. That is probably in my like, top one or two museums in the country right now. Yeah, like, if I was go back to Nashville, yeah. I, would, I, only, I was only there for like two hours. I could spend an entire day. Yeah, was, that museum is utterly fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so... Okay, so uh, Two Live Crew appeals to the Supreme Court, and they reversed the Sixth Circuit, siding with the uh, district court that said it is a fair use. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole opinion, but we'll go through the fair use factors really quickly. Uh, they said, um, it goes without saying, this would be an infringement, but for fair use, which is yeah. an important thing to, to recognize. Uh, and then two, really the most important thing they said is, the Sixth Circuit made a mistake in that they're basically trying to apply these bright line rules that it's presumptively not a fair use if it's commercial <laughs> and we're going to assume harm if it is commercial. So basically once we know, basically once you're making money off of it, we're just going to assume two of the factors weigh against you. Well, considering there's only four factors <laughs> and one of them never plays any part, you pretty much always lose on fair yeah. use. And, and quite frankly, this is a very Supreme Court decision, which is basically the we hate bright line rules. Yes. <laughs> Yes, uh, which also is, you know, if you ask any copyright lawyer, is it a fair use or not, they're always going to fall back on, well, it's a very fact-specific contextual inquiry, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and this case is why. <laughs> I have the discussion almost every day. <laughs> so on the first factor, the, the court said uh, parody can be transformative even if it's commercial. Uh, and in fact, parody supports the reasons why we have copyright in the first place, but, and this is important, it must actually be parody, which means it must be a commentary or criticism of the work being parodied and not a satire, which is using the work to make fun of something else. No. Which will matter a lot when we get into Weird Al because a lot of his parodies are really parodies. Yeah. And, and the thing to keep in mind about this, this actually, I believe, arose at an earlier case having to do with a play. 
remember correctly, that was determined to be satire and not parody and that that was important um, in the determination. So there, there's a reason why the Supreme Court is making this statement. Um, the idea of that parody and satire are different, that, that parody under fair use means you are making fun of the underlying work. Yeah. And in, in this case, if you go and you listen to the two live crew work alone, I'm not sure you're necessarily going to say it's making fun of the underlying work. At the same time, if you look at it, you look through the sort of what the the, the band said, the, the brief, you know, according to the yeah. briefs in the law court and stuff like that. There's a very legitimate argument that the purpose of the song was to be a parody of royalty, which, quite frankly, may be why they didn't want to grant them a license to make yeah, it. Yeah, they probably saw that coming. <laughs> um, so uh, Campbell, uh, Luke Campbell, the um, the author, he later described um, the purpose as. Um, to satirize the original work through comical lyrics. So, yeah. which, if you read the lyrics, they are kind of funny. I mean, yeah, they they're are kind of funny. pretty tame by modern standards, but at the time, <laughs> it was, like I said, it was the kind of thing that made our parents, you know, want to burn our CDs and yeah, throw exactly. our record players. Um, <laughs> and our parents clearly never listened to country music at the time because then they would have been really horrified. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, uh, but interestingly, is, is, and we got into this with the Warhol case a little bit, um, who gets to decide if it's a parody or not? Isn't that really an artistic assessment? And the court to hear uh, acknowledge that they are not the right people to go ask is a two live crew parody of a Roy Orbison song a parody or not basically if if you can find some straight faced explanation for why it is they're just going to assume that it is whether or not that was actually the, the, the intention which is of course debatable you know easy, yeah. easy to say after the fact yeah, if, and if you want to get into the discussion that we have a pretty big discussion that in Warhol about the question of you know is it what does an artistic statement mean in conjunction with you know generation of the work that case it would have to do with what is the, the tra- is it transformative or not what's the transformative nature of the work but it's the same thing here one of the things the courts have real trouble with is if we need to evaluate, is it art? We're not really well yeah. good at doing. We are that. not the right people to <laughs> yeah, do that. Even the jury really shouldn't be doing that. So <laughs> this is the fundamental tension in, in copyright law: is we're balancing. We have a law that has to capture on some level making artistic judgments and. Boy, are we terrible at doing that. <laughs> yeah, especially as lawyers. Okay, so the second factor is the nature of the copy work. This factor, like I said, almost never plays any role in analysis, and it played virtually no never role here. here. <laughs> Third yeah. factor, amount used. Uh, the court said, yes, we have this whole goes to the heart of the work thing. That goes back to a case involving Gerald Ford's memoirs. Uh, but they said in parody, it, it hits different, right? Because if you don't copy the heart of the work, then you can't really do parody. Yeah, you can't really do parody. It's not funny unless you know yeah. it's the work. Uh, they basically said if you don't recognize it, then you're not parodying it. You're just making a different song. We'll talk about that in a second because Weird Al uh, uh, plays in here with uh, how he did his concert at yeah. the end. And then the fourth factor, they said you cannot have an evidentiary presumption of harm, especially if we have a parody, which is inherently transformative. Uh, they said the main harm a parody might cause is that if it's an especially good parody, the criticism may be so you know, <laughs> biting, biting uh, and devastating that nobody wants original anymore. And they're like, but if that's the case, fine. That <laughs> yeah. is not the kind of harm copyright's meant to <laughs> that's do That's what with. the First Amendment is supposed to allow. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, they said basically, which is interesting. So we have a Supreme Court saying... Saying, if you can kill something competitively <laughs> through parody, you get to win. Yeah, exactly. Which, it, it, but again, I think it's it's a very legitimate argument. Which is the whole idea that basically says, if you are such biting criticism that nobody wants to read the original. We want that type of criticism because yeah. clearly it's correct. This is the reason we have a copyright act in the first place. This is to encourage people to, to create new works. So you know, the court went through the factors and basically said, uh, "No, a Sixth Circuit, you got it wrong." Importantly, though, what they did not say is that your ruling that it was not a fair use was wrong. wrong. The way you got there was wrong. You used incorrect assumptions yeah. and an invalid a legal analytical framework. And so what they said is, here's the correct framework. Now go back and do it again. And the real key about this is the phrases that you hear repeatedly in legal circles, reversed and remanded. Yes. For further proceedings <laughs> consistent <laughs> with this opinion. <laughs> if you want to write the rest of it. Reversed means that the judgment is said, nope, the judgment was wrong. Yeah. You, you found for the wrong side. But instead of saying, we find for the other side, they said, no, we told you what you're supposed to do. Now go do it. Yeah. Now, it is entirely possible that there's a universe in which the Sixth Circuit picked this up and looked at it and said, okay, even under this corrected framework, 
Um, Aka Froze still wins, and You're, Two Live Crew still loses. We are not driving the Marvel Cinematic Universe into this, so I need to stretch the imagination. But yes, there could be parallel universes yeah. in which courts actually find things. But that's not what happened, because <laughs> uh, Two Live Crew and Aka Froze settled. Exactly. So it never actually went to a judgment. Uh, the press reports at the time said that Aka uh, agreed to dismiss its lawsuit, and Two Live Crew agreed to license the parody, which is what they wanted to do in the first place. Uh, so Acuff ended up getting some money out of it, and uh, and a bunch of lawyers got got uh, paid in the meantime to go through what had to have been a really fun academic exercise in, yeah. in arguing this. And, and to keep in mind with it, just, you know, with the injunction of this case, as we mentioned it, if you go to, you know, law school and you do any form of Supreme Court law, any form of IP law, this case will be in your case books. Yeah, this this will is be, yeah. one of the most major cases. It's, if, if you study one copyright case in law school, it's this one. Yeah, there, there aren't a ton of Supreme Court copyright cases, period. There's even fewer fair use cases. Yeah. And when you cite to them, there's the, the Folsom case, there's the Sony case on VCRs. Yeah, there's, Max, technically. Yeah, there's this one, <laughs> and then there's uh, Google v. Oracle. Like, yeah. th- those, those are the cases. Um, so uh, th- does not get taken up a lot, although we're about to have another one. Warhol is coming, too. So I don't know. The court must be bored because uh, they're, they're taking up a lot of these now. I still think the Warhol cases, because there is no good answer to this, and this is the kind of case that, quite frankly, the Supreme Court should rule on. Yeah, that we need some clarity <laughs> here. Um, so uh, also interesting here, this case is sometimes incorrectly cited for the proposition that parody is fair use. I think it's more accurate to say it held that parody can be fair use. Yeah. Might even, like, parody usually is fair use. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Lower courts. Yeah. Stop throwing these out. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the the framework established by the Sixth Circuit would have basically made it impossible for a parody to ever be considered fair use. Uh, and so for the Supreme, Supreme Court basically came in and said, not so fast, and, yeah. and paved the way for, for all these parodies going forward. And again, but, I kind of joke about the fact that this is kind of your stereotypical Supreme Court case. One of the things you rapidly learn about the Supreme Court, when again, when you study Supreme Court jurisprudence, is the Supreme Court loves to basically say... You know, lower courts stop simplifying everything and making per se rules. It's all vastly more complicated. You need to go through the more complicated analysis, so do so. And that's basically what they do here, you know, with it, which is also, again, part of the reason why this is such a seminal case is because it is the copyright one that says not copy, you know, parody is fair use, which would actually be relatively uninteresting. It's that parody may be fair use. Here's all the legal analysis, which is why this is a yep. case book in law school. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And I think maybe they were motivated a little bit also by the desire to soften and maybe walk back a little of the language in the Sony case, which we can we'll cover yep. that case at some point too, because it's also a really interesting case about time shifting. That was whether or not you can have a Betamax the VCR now is we think about it, but Betamax was the competing technology because it copies what's on TV and without that was allowed and that's one where you can pretty much see the court saying you know we want this technology to exist and we're going to find a way to justify it so arguably this is one of those where they they kind of walked back the justification to say no we didn't mean it quite that absolutely so you know we got a settlement never got an actual ruling on whether as a matter of law this is or is not a fair use we just got a settlement but as, as typically happens in a case like this everybody who knows the law here can read this Supreme Court case see the writing on the wall and realize okay, we're not going to win a whole lot of copyright infringement lawsuits against people who are making parodies of our songs. So for all practical purposes, parodies are generally going to be considered a fair use, but we should say it is conceptually possible to make one that is not. Yeah, and I think that's, let's get into the thing with it here, and I think a good place to go next is what's a parody song? Yeah. And, you know, we had in this the comment of, you know, the in the Supreme Court said in this, it's a parody song because effectively it's making fun of the underlying work. Or at least work. commenting on it in some or way. Or commenting on the underlying work. There's not a lot of parody songs that actually comment on the underlying work. Yeah. A lot of them are actually commenting about other things in society. Yep. Or commenting about the music industry as a whole, you know, things like that. Does that mean it's not really a parody? It's a satire because under True Life Crew, we have them making a very important distinction yes. between parody and satire. Again, based upon prior case rulings having to do with satire not being considered fair use. And the same distinction exists in trademarks, we should also say. There's a yeah. trademark fair use doctrine for uh, for parodying a product. Uh, but satire not always doesn't always work the same, the same way. way. Yeah, and so I think we've got some of the, the things with that. And when we then get into, and this is what we're going to sort of talk about specifically in conjunction with Weird Al... Are his songs parodies or yes. are they satires? Uh, that's a good question. So let's talk about Weird Al. What's interesting is that this case, uh, Campbell versus uh, Acuff, uh, the Supreme Court decision came down in 1994. Kirk. Yeah. 
I remember Weird Al in the 80s, oh, yeah. don't you? <laughs> he was definitely around in the 80s, no question behind it. Now, he existed before this was ever a question. Um, and I, I don't know, quite frankly, how many artists there were who did his style of music before he did it. He's definitely one of the, probably the most famous person doing that yeah. style of music. We should say also, I couldn't find it. I've got a copy of the case here the, the, uh, in front of me. I was trying to find this quote that I remember reading a long time ago. Somewhere in the Supreme Court case, they say, you know what, there's not going to be an impact on the market for the original. Who could ever maintain a career making parody? Songs. <laughs> and yet we have, you know, but as, as it, Weird Al himself even commented about, you know, 40 years later, I'm on a tour bus with this comedian. Who would ever thought my life would turn out this way? And as he pointed out, probably me. Yes, um, of course. <laughs> which was one of his better jokes. Um, the, uh, but yeah, it's one of those things with, um, you know, what we, what we really have with this is what we have this kind of thing of the, the there's there's a key aspect, again, I want to get into of the Supreme Court, which is. This type of music was not that old at yeah. the point in time this happened. It's something we look back and say, this is old school music. This is 80s music, 90s music. Particularly in popular conscience. I mean, the hip-hop scene has, has really older roots. But, yeah. uh, you know, in, in terms of getting, like, mainstream radio play, you know, 2 yeah. Live Crew on your on your FM radio, that was relatively new. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, they never really played this song because of the issues with the lyrics, if I remember yeah. correctly. I don't remember this one ever being on the uh, radio. I remember other radio. songs of theirs, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it's one of those where, you know, you have this kind of thing with the... There's a recognition, I think, in some respects by the Supreme Court, even though they never voice it, of music is changing. We have this sort of thing where it basically says, hey, there may be more parodying, there may be more around this. We have Weird Al Yankovic, we have other, you know, artists out there that are potentially making parody and satire songs. We don't want to just say you can't do this, you know, as a, as a flat out thing, which is what the Sixth Circuit said. We're going to say it depends. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to Weird Al, we look at it and say, well, what about his songs? And we were having this discussion. Most of his songs do not appear to be true parodies. They're not making fun of the underlying song. As we said, and we picked on the beginning, Smells Like Nirvana is clearly making yeah. fun of the, the song. Smells Like song, The video, it's all all <laughs> making fun of, of the unintelligibility of Kurt Cobain's <laughs> lyrics. Uh, but yeah, most of his songs don't do that. I mean, there's nothing in Eat It that, that is making fun of, of Beat It or Michael Jackson yeah. or the song. Um you know the the video kind of lampoons it a little bit, whether like like yeah. knife fighting with rubber chickens or whatever. But let's, but let's take over an entirely different one, like a surgeon compared to like a virgin by Madonna. Yeah, those have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, definitely not. Uh, but you you get borderline cases like white and nerdy. You know, maybe yeah. is maybe uh, almost the inverse of uh, of the Campbell case, yeah. where where he's making fun of the, the hip hop image by talking about the exact opposite <laughs> thing. Yeah, it's, it's some guy mowing a yard in his loafers. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, and yeah, you have those those kind of things sort of coming. Similarly, Amish Paradise to Gangsta Paradise. Yes, um, arguably know. some parodic elements there. Yeah, you know. So, but I, I think what you're seeing with this is that we have this problem of. Well, do we, is the song a parody or is it a satire? This is something the Supreme Court said is important. Yet we also notice this hasn't really been fought over. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not really been any cases of, you know, oh, well, your song's really a satire against, you know, the vagaries of Nashville's music industry and not making fun of my song as a whole. Yeah. No, we haven't had that. <laughs> haven't case. had that battle. And there's a simple <laughs> reason why, which is Weird Al does the exact same thing Two Live Crew tried to do. Yes. Go get permission. Go get permission. The difference with it is, is he should, I think he's usually given it. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, uh, he usually does. There, there's a couple of cases where he did not. Um, I was actually looking this up after we saw the concert. Like, like has anybody ever told him no? And I thought there was at least one famous case. Yeah, there are a handful of people who've told him no, um, and almost all of them have later regretted it. I think there's one artist, I think Prince was the famous one that absolutely would not give him permission. Okay. And that's, again, so you can see as to, you know, it's, it, this is, you know, artist prerogative. But at the same time, the other thing to keep in mind with Weird Al is he has honored that. He yeah. has not released a song saying, I can release this because it's parody and it's fair use. If you say you can't make parody, you can't make parodies of your songs. He doesn't. Yeah. At the same time, I, I, I believe certain artists as well were actually kind of flattered by his. You oh, know, it's become a thing now. Like you ever read his Wikipedia page? The number of artists who have been like, "Oh, I'm so excited when Weird Al called me." That, that means I've made it. Like, yeah, I've made it I'm relevant I'm, enough to, to be parodied. To be parodied. And then, quite frankly, he's got a point. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we should say also, like, at, so, uh, the, so the concert Kirk and I went to, though, was not a parody concert. He played yeah, all original stuff. I'm going to get the name of the concert wrong, but it's it's the return of the ill-advised reading Ill advised, tour or something yeah, like that. The ill-advised, uh, uh, egomaniacal something, yeah. uh, where he's playing all of his originals, none of the parodies. Um, but what's what's fun, though, is a lot, I mean, even his original songs all are kind of in a style. So um, what did he open up with? It was one I hadn't heard it's before. The, um, the, the, Why does this always happen, always happen to me? Yeah, which uh, I, I don't know what style I would call that. But it was uh, 
kind of a generic pop, bland pop song. Yeah, it's. I think a lot of quite frankly, his his generic pop songs, his generic make fun of songs. They're very eighties. I think because most yeah. of the ones he wrote in the eighties period, they have that. And, and the, the adjective I always use, which is my own selection of it, is they have a very plastic sound. Yeah. So I always refer to eighties music as sounding plastic. Yeah. Um, the the things sort of you know with it, and that's a lot of his are that. The one that we really were pointing out, I had to explain to my kids, is he at the very end he did Nature Trail to Hell, um, which if you've ever heard the the song, you know what it is. In some sense, it's lampooning the fact that the, the, there's a window in the 80s yeah. when every horror movie ended with to hell. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, bus ride to hell. And <laughs> it's, it's The more recent example of it was, is about question Sharknado and Sci-Fi Channel sort of making fun of what things can be mushed together and make into yep. funny, funny horror movies. It's that same kind of idea that was happening in, in truly in horror movies at the time. And that's what he's doing. He's making fun of it by saying, I'm going to make this grotesque, you know, essentially so the song which is about a grotesque movie trailer which is nature trail to hell yep. um, and in 3D um, and, and just making fun of the way these movies were portrayed horror movies were portrayed at that point in time and slasher movies in particular and a lot of his songs are like that like uh, Dare to be Stupid is one of his most famous songs yeah. which is like a, a very 1980s like, like Euro music Type yeah. uh, I don't know. You know what it reminds me of is the the Mike Myers sketch on Saturday Night Live, uh, Sprockets. <laughs> That's he, a good, yeah, Sprockets. But he's the Welcome to Sprockets. It reminds me of that. That's a perfect example of what it's like. Yeah, uh, just kind of has that sound to it. If you don't know what that is, go Google it. It is worth your time. Uh, That's one of Saturday Night's better bits ever. Yeah, uh, kind of kind of obscure now, but uh, but really good. Um, so he has a lot of these sort of little mashups. He always did his polka medleys on each album. Yeah. Now the polka medleys. Are covers. Yeah. Those well, are usually. Yeah. He sometimes alters lyrics slightly. A little bit, but not much. But that happens anyway uh, in covers. That's the thing. Like, the literal language of the cover band statute basically says you can't change the fundamental character. But like I said, the Chris Cornell version of Billie Jean hits different. It's just a very different song. And a lot of these songs will, will change up how it sounds and how it feels when you yeah. do a, a cover. The best example of uh, picking on him for the polka is if you go, if you want a great polka, and I think and my kids love it, I think it's hilarious. His most recent release is the Hamilton polka. Yes, he takes the music yes. of Hamilton and releases it as a polka. It is utterly hilarious. Watch the video as well. My kids didn't even recognize <laughs> the songs at first until they got to um, the one that King George sings. Yes. The, 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 the rock ballad love song. They're like, oh my gosh, that's this song? <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the worst example because he... he basically keeps Hamilton it's unquestionably the recognizable as the Hamilton music and it's also a riot because it's done as a polka <laughs> let's talk about what he did at the end of this concert yep. when he got done with the original so I had to leave my, my kids weren't feeling good and they had to get up early so Kirk got to stay for the end of it and got to see my favorite <laughs> Weird Al original the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota uh but Kirk, they pointed out it was not my favorite, which was actually Midnight Star that he did about yeah. halfway through the concert. Yeah, and, uh, and Frank's 2,000-inch TV is really <laughs> a good one. Uh, but uh, they, they, at the end, he did uh, didn't do the parodies, but what he did do was perform original music sent to the parody lyrics. Yes. So this is interesting because the lyrics were written in the style of, like, like let's say Yoda, okay? Yep. So, Yo so he, did, he did White and Nerdy, he did Amish Paradise, he did Yoda, and he did... Um, uh, word crimes. Word we have crimes. done a couple other. Word crimes edition. is phenomenal. Um, but he did not do them with the underlying parody music. He yeah. did them to entirely different works of music that he sang those lyrics over. So he would be the author of the lyrics to his parody songs. Yep. Uh, but so if he puts those lyrics to different original music, then it's no longer presumably not parody a parody song. because it's an original song. Yeah. <laughs> so then he gets away with not having to pay royalties on the songs he's parodying because the music is mm -hmm. original and the lyrics are original. Yep. So yes, yeah, so a very, very interesting exercise there, and him being able to do it all because technically it was all original, everything in yeah. the concert. Yeah, and that's we're assuming I'm assuming conjecture this, and just so I, I actually listened to it from outside the venue because my kids were also needing to leave, but when we heard him starting to do his own encore we left immediately before his encore started we were starting to do the encore and we heard what it was we actually stopped and listened to quite a bit of it he did this all as a medley and it went for about 15 minutes wow. he actually did quite a bit of, of sort of stuff in the middle of it um and he did some sections in the middle of it because i couldn't see him i didn't know what he was doing on yeah. stage um so i can't say a, a lot about that but it was one of those things where you know it was very interesting to hear them and it, of course as soon as i heard it my immediate take was he's doing parody lyrics over original music He's not licensed to play this venue to play the parody songs. That's how he's getting around it. Yep. You know, that's the immediate take. You know, again, as an IP lawyer as to what this is, great idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Which also one, one more thing I want to mention. Uh, when he he did uh, Dare to Be was Dare to Be Stupid. Dare to Be Stupid that he did as like like elevator like lounge music. <laughs> like he completely <laughs> changed he, the genre. He laid it out as lounge as lounge fairy music. Yeah. I would call it Muzak. I mean, which yeah. I think that is a trademark Muzak. No, it, it was like like waiting for your orthodontist appointment music. It <laughs> yeah, was, it was so <laughs> terrible. And, and, and that was the whole point: is that the audience was sitting here going, "Oh my God, this is a song we all know, we all kind of love." I didn't recognize and, it oh at first. Goodness, I'm like, what is he playing? And then Kirk looked at me, and I was like, "Oh my." God, it's Dare to be Stupid. Well, and the funniest part of it, of course, if you know Dare to be Stupid, he has the section in it where he's like, you know, you know, t- you know, yell out to me, Dare to be Stupid. I yeah. can't hear you. <laughs> yeah, and of course, the audience is yelling, Dare to be Stupid. And then the next slide is, okay, I hear you now. <laughs> well, of course, the audience did that, but they didn't really know how to do it. Because it's not the same <laughs> song. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was great. <laughs> so there you go. There's sort of the, the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, Weird Al is actually, in some sense, a less interesting example than maybe it sounds like because... It's part of sort of his uh, business ethics yes. as a performer. Um, he and business acumen, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's managed to. I mean, think about this. Weird Al got his start in the 1970s, so he has been active and successful now in six different decades of music: 70s, yeah. 80s, 90s. Yeah, that's six six decades. Uh, still relevant, and it just, it's all the more ironic that in the Supreme Court case, it kind of paves the way for this. They're like, who would ever make money off this anyway? <laughs> like, you can't you can't build a career off doing this. Well, one guy did. <laughs> and there's some of the other ones out there. There are you know well-known parody artists out yeah. there as well he's by far the most famous and probably because he makes fun of pop music yeah. so he's, he's a another good one is uh, richard cheese that's not a stage name but he yeah. basically does um true parodies but he does um re-performances of like famous songs all done in that same like 70s lounge like fairy lounge type uh type style um yeah. and it's uh it's, it's very distinctive and he also <laughs> likes to pick songs with extremely explicit lyrics and then <laughs> sing them in this lounge lizard style where it's very juxtaposed and again arguably altering the fundamental character right. of this of the song but this is one of those things where you know what you're getting paid the royalty off of it so what do yeah. you care one of the funny you're 9.1 cents per song if you want to think about funny ones Stephen Colbert actually did you know a number of sort of you know parody lyrics and stuff like that he has a parody album of uh, Christmas music the best my favorite one of which is he actually does um um, Angels will be with you shortly, which is about you know being put on hold to hear your prayers. And one of the most hilarious portions of it is you get a- the, the the Christmas song "Angels We Have Heard on High" done as hold music, um, <laughs> which is is really pretty hilarious. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those where you you have a lot of parody you have a lot of this kind of stuff going down. Weird Al did I think without any question pave the way. But Weird Al is in a completely uninteresting case in this because well he's entirely licensed, which means everything he does is legal. Yeah. So yeah. from our point of view, it's this is legally uninteresting because it's all okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's a, it's one of those open and shut, uh, close the book on it type deals. Where how does he get away with it? Oh, they just give him permission. Oh, yeah, exactly. What's, that's, what's way less interesting than uh, than what happened with um, with Two Live Crew. So anyway, so that's the story on Weird Al. Uh, coming up next, we have a lot of stuff that's. I'm looking at my my board here. I've got all of our ideas written down. I don't know where we're going to go next. Kirk has finally, I learned this morning, seen season one of Stranger Things. <laughs> I actually saw it a while ago. I just forgot to talk about it. And, 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 you know, it it's the first and as of currently only show I have ever truly binge watched. Um, so I don't have Netflix. I got it on DVD and promptly sat down and watched all four DVDs back to back. And then on the <laughs> flip side, I've also finally seen season one of Picard. Now that we're into what season three now, so we may at some point go do a, a, a way too late review of these things, where we just kind of talk about these episodes to give you kind of a, a less legal heavy, more lighthearted uh, you know review we episode. A couple of real legal heavy episodes. Yeah, we haven't done that in, in a while. So uh, we got that coming up, and then we may go back and revisit. Um, the, the blockchain episode that we did. There's some uh, new things coming up with uh, NFTs and what's happening to that market. Um, so lot, lots going on, and I'm sure we'll come back from AIPLA, which we're going to in uh, two months here with a, a bunch of new ideas. So uh, don't have any specific plans at this point, but uh, hopefully you guys are continuing to enjoy what, what we're doing and putting out there. If not, let us know. Uh, and if so, let us know. Yep. All right, that's all for this time. We'll see you next time. Orm, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. All right, there's something go. running back there. So. Yeah, not much there. <laughs> All right, here we go. Three, two, one. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the...